From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, May 21st. You're listening to the Macrocast. Um, Tony Fratto in New York. Uh, John uh, Fagan and Brendan Walsh for our Markets Policy Partners down in D.C., Guys, we got Fed minutes this uh, this week. Here's a Fed minutes from um, you know from a couple of weeks ago, from late April, um, to get a little insight into what uh, the FOMC is thinking about uh, what they're seeing in the economy. And you know, the thing that struck me was that you know Powell's been saying it's not not only is it not time to talk about withdrawing support. It's not time to talk about talking about <laughs> withdrawing support, but it seems like some other members of the FOMC seem to think it was time to talk about talking about uh, withdrawing some some monetary support, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Thanks, Tony. It's not a it's not a total surprise. We've actually this is separating out interest rate hikes from tapering quantitative easing, quantitative easing obviously being the asset purchase program and they're purchasing treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, 120 billion a month uh, is is the current pace. And the speculation has really been around when is the timing of the taper? And the taper is the first step toward the glide path to eventual rate hikes. And so the taper isn't just the taper, it's also a, a signal on timing for, for rate hikes. And so hence the, the, very, you know, the very sharp focus on uh, the commentary about the taper. The Fed has been really crystal clear on its rate guidance. It's not quite so crystal clear on the, uh, it's not really <laughs> crystal clear at all on the, uh, on the tapering guidance, substantial further progress toward the Fed's goals is the formulation that they've used. They've generally said, Fed officials have generally said that's some time from now. And most of the Fed officials in recent weeks have said it's still some time from now. But there has been some you know, growing divergences on the committee. That's totally normal. For instance, uh, Dallas Fed President Kaplan has been one of the key proponents of t- beginning to perhaps in the not too distant future talk about talking about now this is this is kind of what was captured in the minutes it was relatively gentle i'll quote a number of participants suggested that if the economy continued to make rapid progress toward the committee's goals it might be appropriate at some point in upcoming meetings to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases wow there's a lot of bubble wrap around that and and we also have to remember that we're reading an excerpt from a meeting that took place before the disappointing jobs number came out. That, that is, that is a key aspect and dis- relatively disappointing April uh, industrial production yep. and actually kind of everything across the board. Sales. Yeah. So, and, and, and that's captured. So that the city surprise index, they, they have an index. So it's, it's how the data is coming out relative to expectations. So data can still be fine, but if the market was expecting it to be awesome, it, it, it goes down and it actually turned negative today. So, you know, we just, we had huge expectations that, you know, come everyone getting shots that the the, the, the spring and summer was going to be off to the races. Have we, over, for, have we overestimated it, Brendan, do you think? I think we have in terms of, but I think a lot of it is the, the supply constraints. It's just hard to 
to get everybody back, you know, to go from zero to 60, economies just don't work like that, you know? So I don't think it's troubling, but I think it's just going to take a little longer for us to get there. Yeah, the the supply constraints are real. I mean, um, you know, we look at things like, I mean, so obviously like, you know, a lot of, a lot of attention to, um, you know, to uh, semiconductors, chips, uh, lumber, you know, steel is not in short supply, but it is in at you know pretty high prices right now. Uh, so yep. steel steel is expensive, and as much as pricing is a throttle on uh, on growth, um, you're going to pay more for your going to pay more for steel. Um, and so, and even like little things you wouldn't even think about. So, if you have a boat and your engine broke, and you have to buy a new engine, it's 2023 before you can get it. Because people bought so many boats in 2020, <laughs> there's no more boats and there's no more engines, and and, I mean, and you, that you is just ramp boat, that up, you know, that like is a boat glut. There will be there. Will, that is a boat. Oh my god! Yeah, hold yeah. off because after the summer, there's going to be millions of boats on the market. <laughs> Definitely short boats, you know, uh, because totally like agree. the glut, the glut is coming. When people understand <laughs> what maintenance costs and how little you use those things. Yes. Yeah, there will there will be there will be selling. Is one as a complete aside to all of this. There's this ongoing saga of a of a you know some a very wealthy uh, uh, golf uh, uh, you know couple getting divorced, and uh, the sticking point is uh, you know the wife wants this two hundred and forty million dollar yacht, which I think is. The craziest thing that anybody that someone would want the two hundred forty million dollar yacht in the divorce settlement. I would, I would gladly give the, give them the the yacht and take the cash. Well, well Jeff Bezos just built a five hundred uh, million dollar, yeah, five hundred million dollar uh, super yacht, and he also built a two hundred fifty million dollar sister yacht. His yacht has a yacht. <laughs> you know, like a, like a pony, you know, you know, for your forebred, right? Yeah. The new rentals on the Potomac are like five bucks an hour and they're awesome. <laughs> they're really good. So, okay. So all this, stuff, all this stuff built out and let, you know, probably let a lot of us, look, I still think we're going to have a rip, you know, this is a ripping economy. It's going to be. No, like, totally. But the, the same reason that yeah. prices are going up because of supply constraints is the same reason that some of the macro data and the growth data is disappointing because we just don't are, have the yeah, but, to do things right now. Yeah, but there are, these things are real constraints and they do have an impact in um, uh, in job creation yep. and uh, and you know something you know there's a, a, a new uh, you know uh, item paying attention to today is you know the expiration expiration not so much the expiration as much as it is the exhaustion of the PPP program. Yeah. So PPP is out of money. Um, like it's done. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, small businesses and restaurants who still could use, uh, you know, PPP uh, resources for some time before their businesses are going to be able to get back to being, you know, good economic engines, even with this economy coming back and opening up, it still takes a lot of, uh, a lot of time for, uh, for these places to come online. They've essentially, you know, we, we use, uh, you know, the, the, you, you can look at a lot of companies as, um, you know, kind of zombie businesses who have been kept afloat by uh, taxpayer support over this period. Um, 
you know, eventually even zombies die if you withdraw support, you know, that, yeah. that, you know, so, uh, and so you wonder whether it's premature or whether that's, you know, they're going to have to. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I was at the office yesterday and downtown is slowly reopening and you see, you know, the, the, the lunch places are, are, some of them are open, but you know, I was there at one o'clock and normally the, you know, the sandwich shop in our building at one o'clock would be, there'd be a line out the door and, and there was like four people there. It's not their fault. People just aren't back in offices. When they are, they will have a very viable business again. Yeah. And and the Fed basically just to just to circle back to where the Fed is. All this confusion really is validating the caution that the majority of the committee and even let's face it, even the hawks on the committee are very very cautious here. And uh, and this is much more about you know setting the table rhetorically yeah, a on a very yeah. long runway to this uh, to to eventual normalization, but. The, the minutes also made the point that inflation is extremely noisy and they're sticking with their transitory characterization of price pressures, which really have been validated by the data. There's just clearly a lot of distortion in, in, these, in these prices. So, you know, the, the markets reacted with a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, slightly to this, to the headlines, essentially, that really focused on the, uh, on this, this, talking about talking about tapering in the minutes. And I think that that really speaks to the communications challenge of the Fed here. They've got so many cross currents over the summer. We agree with you, Tony. We think that the that we'll look back at April, it'll be a blip, right? Mm -hmm. And this economy is going to be very strong over the summer. But, you know, it's not always going to be a straight line. And, uh, and there are going to be these mixed messages that come through. And for the Fed to be, you know, to be basically hanging back, but trying to message this delicate balance between economic optimism, transitory inflation and continued commitment to ultra accommodative policies. It's tougher messaging over the summer. There's going to be a lot of guessing games about the taper potentially being announced at the Jackson Hole um, Symposium in late August. And our, you know, our, our expectation is that the Fed tries to get ahead of that and, uh, and message through it. Really, the, essentially, you know, in the most simple of terms, there are three non-farm payroll reports left before the August uh, Jackson Hole Symposium. Yeah. And, and John, let they, me ask you. April, they've all got to be knocking it out of the park for the Fed no, to you're talk right. about taper. At that, and we, at that we talk about the market reactions. And so, so many people think that the, the equity market is the one that matters, where it, it, that's not really what the Fed is focused on. The, the rates market is really what matters, especially when it comes to Fed policy. What what is the what is the the rates market pricing in right now? So right now the uh, if you look at futures markets, the expectation is still there. There was it was kind of like late late March early April. There was a sense that maybe the Fed would have to start hiking rates in the late 2022 kind of time frame. There was a sense that the taper might show up. Uh, in in the second half of the year, be announced at Jackson Hole and start up in the in the third or fourth quarter. There, that has kind of come off the boil a little bit here. Markets have backed off and paired some of those bets. Still, they're ahead of the Fed. Uh, they're giving the Fed, you know, far less than full credit for its median rate projections. And markets are still seeing rate hikes beginning in a series of rate hikes in 2023. Um, but that is, but not as, not as aggressively priced as those used to be. And so that shows that the Fed's messaging is getting through and that the data as it's developing is validating in, in the minds of the markets, you know, on the margin, what the Fed's guidance is going to be.
Yeah, I think you're right on that. And, and your point about, um, you know, we, we have some intervening um, meetings uh, on the calendar before we get to Jackson Hole. Um, these guys, th- these guys are not interested in, in, in pulling surprises in the Grand Tetons. Um, actually, are they going to be, are they going to be in person now? There's a remote, remote? I don't know. I, I, I've searched that. I, I haven't heard. I haven't heard either. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's decided yet. Yeah. It may not, it may not be, uh, but at any rate, uh, in either in spirit nor uh, physically, I don't think they're looking to to um, surprise anybody. Yeah, but uh, I think that the chances of a surprise would be slightly higher if they were actually together. I think if it's remote, you know, that there's no chance of a surprise. You're just going to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that those hikes help. You know, people talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but well, but you know, John's point that you know we've got you know we've got a few months of. Um, data coming at us. Yeah. We've got jobs, we've got we'll, we'll have better measures of inflation and uh, goods orders and seeing if these, and you know, what, 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 you know, what shakes out with the supply chain disruptions, the, you know, the continued opening on vaccines. There's a lot to learn um, over the next few months, but there's also a lot of opportunity for them to message in, in that period also. Like they are not going to, like when I say they're not going to surprise us, I don't think they're going to surprise us in Jackson Hole. I think whatever they plan to say in Jackson Hole, we're going to get some breadcrumbs, um, you know, along the way in June and July. Yeah, there's nothing special about Jackson Hole. It's just a meeting, you know. In the past, some, some they have transitioned, but it's not like you have to do it because you're at Jackson Hole. You know? as, yeah, as a communicate, some, you know, someone focuses on like sort of communicating some of this stuff. You know, I actually like I do like I like the idea of you know dropping the big idea. Uh, at, at, a, uh, yeah. at, a, at a conference with a bunch of smart people, you know, smart eco- economic people and, and all the, 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 you know, the smartest, um, you know, economic reporters are there. Right. And, and the great. Yeah, because it's a perfect time to message it. And then all right. the smart people are there to answer and the questions and, and all the smart reporters are there to ask the questions. Yeah, yeah I think they go and carry the message uh, on it that way. But I just don't think the character of this Federal Reserve yeah. group, this chairman, this board, and uh, that th- th- I, I think they don't have an interest in dropping surprises. I think that everything that we've seen from them over a number of years now is um, they try to signal far in advance. Sometimes they don't always nail it, right? I mean, sometimes you get it wrong, and sometimes you, they have to change direction. We've you know we've seen that happen. But their attempt, their interest is to not surprise market participants. It's to signal early, to let them know their intentions. And now I, I think, again, I think sometimes it would serve them better to reserve the right to surprise a little bit because sometimes surprise, you know, surprising has a um, uh, has an intent has a, uh, a an effect also in how in how people operate. You don't want, you know, yeah, sometimes. I think the Fed gets too interested in, um, you know, not surprising, and then which case <laughs> you feel like it's a one you got to you have a one way bet, you know, and so that's not necessarily a healthy market if 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 it's one way bets, and we've seen some one way bets here for a while. Now let's play it into their their I think broader macroeconomic goals, but and especially in a crisis environment where you want to assure people and let them have anchors 
on policy, but I don't know that that is a peacetime, you know, place to be, you know, um, I think you want to sit, have, uh, you know, sort of some equal, uh, anticipation that, you know, you have to go do your own homework and your own diligence to think <laughs> what the future is going to be and not just rely on whatever the fed is telling you, uh, the policy stance is going to be. So, um, what else, anything else interesting out of that, that, uh, that, that, that you guys saw? You know, I think the, uh, the central global central banks, just one, one last note is that global central banks are not all together anymore. Uh, we yeah. are seeing some tapering and, uh, Canada, bank of Canada, uh, and some other, uh, some other central banks are beginning to pull back from yeah, the extraordinary easing. The European Central Bank has a much more forceful hawkish contingent uh, on uh, for President Lagarde to contend with. She's held the line uh, on that so far. The Bank of Japan has been as, you know, basically as dovish as, as everybody has expected. The Reserve Bank of Australia has held the line on its uh, easing and been pretty forceful about pushing back earlier, pushing back on the sovereign rate pop that we saw in sort of February, March timeframe, mm -hmm. but there's increasing differentiation uh, among central banks. Yeah, actually, yeah, uh, yesterday I saw headlines where uh, Draghi was making uh, dovish comments about ECB policy, and I, it took me a second to remember, oh, he's not at the ECB anymore, <laughs> he's the head of Italy. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things that is, uh, that is interesting on the back of this is when you see the the U.S. growth, you know, as we talked about it, it's more nuanced than maybe the the you know expectations of just a straight up you know rocket ship to the moon in terms of the recovery. Uh, but those expectations matter, and when economic data falls a little short of expectations, even if it's stronger, that has currency implications. And we've seen European growth, which was expected to be pretty tepid, lukewarm, and choppy because of the lagging vaccine rates and the lingering sort of shutdowns and restrictions, European economic growth has surprised almost, yeah. you know, across the board to the upside for the past couple of months. And we're seeing that in renewed Euro strength. Uh, and that is sort of underlined by the kind of hawkish, the louder hawkish undertones uh, in quarters of the ECB. So it's a, it's a very nuanced kind of time frame, And we think that the communications challenges for central banks and the sort of implicit coordination that central banks tend to engage in gets harder and harder from here. Do you get the sense that, uh, that Europe is uh, interested in uh, the virtues of a stronger Euro right now? Um, you know, obviously that it has, 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 uh, you know, consequences um, for, you know, competitiveness, uh, you know, there right now, but you get the sense that, um, in fact, sometimes not a sense. I mean, like you know, some ex explicit goals uh, uh, by a number, by many in Europe, of you know wanting to see the euro, um, you know, be, be used more for uh, you know global transactions to challenge the dollar uh, as a reserve currency, which um, which was not an express goal of the euro uh, for you know, for a very long time, but I think they, they, you know, they chafed after what happened in, you know, during the Trump administration. Use it, using the dollar as a cudgel uh, with, with European companies. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that there's, there's certainly maybe a greater appreciation of it. I think the, the broader instincts of a, you know, the maybe 
stability and a sense of kind of keeping your own house in order, uh, which is the, you know, the U.S., basically the U.S. approach to the dollar, <laughs> you know, the strong dollar policy is sort of the, the, the headline typically, uh, but a sense that, you know, some of the things you can do internally focusing on growth, focusing on the, you know, the ability of Southern Europe to be revitalized under, you know, Italy under Draghi is a, you know, it, it has the, the feeling of a potential growth story of a greater unity of the European project. The pandemic has been galvanizing to that. Uh, there's been a greater, we've talked about this on the, show, on the podcast before, a degree of fiscal federalism that hasn't been there, an acceptance of that, of the yep. European project taking the next step toward integration. That's bullish for the euro and uh, over the long period of time. So I think that it, it does fit into the context of this new, this reimagined next phase of, of the European project, which is probably cherished by Mario Draghi and his allies more than, more than some others. There's always a lot of diversity of opinion. It, you know? it is, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny how these things uh, sort of sneak up on you, right? But this whole, the, 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 the Draghi exper experiment in Italy uh, is a, it has consequences, I think, for the entire EU uh, and the, the future of the euro and the, uh, and, and the future you know, possibilities for greater fiscal integration. And um, you know, if he is successful in you know, generating growth, not just in the north, but in the south in Italy, um, he's got an opportunity to serve as a model for uh, you know for the rest of the um, uh, of the union. So we'll be you know we'll see. Someone who pays attention to Italy, I guess I have to, I'll be paying I'll be paying extra attention uh, to him now. But um, but it would be good to see you know, you know uh, growth returning. I was talking to to uh, some uh, European World Bank. Uh, people yesterday um, in DC, and um, they're feeling good about the ramp up on vaccinations finally in, mm -hmm. in Europe, and uh, and so we'd love to see some economic activity returning there. We need all of these engines of growth. We need them for here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, have you, uh, have you, uh, guys altered your thinking on, uh, how fast growth gets? Have you had a reason to think about taking, you know, to, uh, you know, taking off expectations a little bit and, and has the market, uh, based on what we've learned in, in, you know, and just seen in April? I don't think broadly speaking that we're, we've really changed our tune that much, you know, the expectation of the of the recovery being, you know, strong and sustained and, and really uh, impressive, I think is when we look back on the summer months, that's what we're going to see. Uh, but the, the reality is everybody, you know, the, uh, you, when you think about these expectations of, yeah, the rocket ship to the moon, the reality is always more nuanced. There are going to be months where you have a, uh, you know, wonkiness in the data and uh, you know, consumers get tired out. Or, you know, maybe there's something that's a little more structural or, or at least like, you know, transitory as individuals, you know, reemerge from the pandemic and want to ease back into the kind of lives uh, that they had in the past rather than rushing out and doing it all at once. And it's, it's, a, it's a big social experiment. <laughs> and as we've discussed yeah. with John Dick. And, uh, and, and so I think that there's going to be, you know, Ultimately, the direction and and velocity will be something that we can be very happy about. 
uh, but there there are going to be potholes in the road. Yeah, you know? I think we, we have the capability to, to grow very fast. It's just, I, I'm not sure, the labor market is confusing this time. You know, I'm not sure exactly how quickly people will be able to fill job uh, vacancies um, for yeah, a whole I'm host sure. of reasons. You know, uh, I, I think that's the biggest constraint holding us back. Yeah, definitely. Every, every you know, every, every jobs, uh, you know, non-farm payrolls report is like the biggest ever. Th- this is, I think this is a really interesting one because I think like the mysteries of April, um, you know, we need to, we need to find out <laughs> what, like what, what, what really do we think is going on and, and uh, is it, is it confirmed or do we have a surprise? Uh, right. On, on I'm, I'm more interested in the revisions to April than necessarily yeah. what, what happened in May. Me too. I think as, as interested. I agree. I agree with you on that. hundred percent. I'm really, really curious to see what, what we learned from revisions. Hey, I'm going to be doing, you know, my best on, um, um, you know, trying to support this economy. I was like getting on a airplane um, this afternoon to fly to Pittsburgh it will be the, my first time on a flight since January of 2020. Wow! Well, I'm pretty excited about that. But I'll, I'll let you know what the, um, what, you know, what the airport scene was like. Have you guys flew? You guys have flown though, I think. Have you? Uh, yes, I flew to Florida uh, yeah. a few months ago. Uh, I haven't flown. Are you Are you flying out of LaGuardia? Yes, I am. Is, is it the new one? Yes, I am. I'm excited. Oh, wow. Great. We, you have to tell us about that next week. I will. I have a, I'll have a full report on uh, on LaGuardia. You know, I, I, I've been uh, needing to go to Washington a few times over the past few weeks. And so, the, you know, the other day I had a chance to um, I took the train to Washington from mm-hmm. the new Moynihan. Um, oh, yeah, that's gorgeous. Right. Which is absolutely stunning and for anybody who any of our listeners who you know uh made ever made regular use of penn station which was a whole you know the worst place on earth dark and dirty and uncomfortable and just a dungeon of a of a train station um the the, uh, moynihan uh station is the opposite of all of those things. <laughs> so is it across the street at the post Literally office? Literally across the street and what was the old, uh, the old, you know, post office. And it's, it, 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 most people, most people don't, don't know this, but um, the, that, that beautiful, uh, you know, neoclassical um, um, structure across the street, that, that's what Penn Station once was. Yeah. It, it, was it used to be amazing. Yeah, place. So you get to see that now, and um, uh, but it's open and airy, and um, you know uh, uh, it's clean and uh, just really wonderful. And you know, I used to think about just getting to Penn Station at the very last minute because I want to spend as little time there as possible. Now I was there early because I had to do a phone call, and it was great just hanging out in um, in Moynihan Station. No, I mean I, every time I go to Penn Station, I always think, why w- the tracks go underneath both these buildings? Why is this the train station and not that? <laughs> Wonder no more. Wonder no more. All right, hey, let's take a break, and we'll come back and um, and look ahead. You're listening to the Macrocast. Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS, is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., New York, and California. 
HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. All right, back on the macrocasts. Um, hey guys, look at you know, looking ahead to next week, we have um, you know the bank CEOs are going to be testifying. Um, there's a lot to get into, and we'll you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about um, what they uh, you know how that how that uh, hearing goes next week. But you know, one of the things that's you know we've been seeing in the markets and um, what policymakers are grappling with. Uh, is you know what we wh- how to treat uh, you know how to treat crypto assets um, you know we had the recent um, you know situation where the you know colonial pipeline paying off the ransomware attackers um, in cryptocurrency um, Treasury came out yesterday with um, its tax enforcement uh, recommendations. You know, one of the recommendations was a real body blow to uh, to crypto, which was you know trying to shine light on, you know, who is moving these assets around. Um, I think there are challenges there, but they're trying to get at this, you know, this uh, this point that we've made on this show frequently in the past that like you know you use whatever you do whatever you want with these assets, but at the end of the day, you know, Treasury uh, is going to need to know that you're paying your taxes. You're not you're not using these these assets to avoid taxes, and that you're not funneling money to the bad guys. And they have strong suspicion that you're avoiding taxes, and they have pretty good evidence that you're paying off the bad guys. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. Yeah. And uh, you know we've been telling we've been telling our clients that the regulatory regime that was under the the Trump administration was very it, it was very laissez faire. It was secretary. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was very focused on the terrorism financing angle uh, on, but you know, the, the publication of bright line rules, it tended to be enforcement by um, you know, basically uh, uh, the, you know, regulation by enforcement, they would pick out, you know, some of the worst, uh, some of the worst actors uh, or actresses in the, in the space and enforce against them. The SEC had a fuzzy, fuzzy rules on characterization and the treasury uh, treasury secretary yellen and uh sec chief gary gensler are clearly uh going to try to rectify some of these we expect a lot more bright line rules to follow this uh this is just the tip of the iceberg we expect certainly getting your arms around the tax the tax reporting is is always job one you know get more information in the door as you know uh Tony, from your time at Treasury in the White House, that was always like the first, <laughs> you know, the first thing on the list, get more information. And then you start formulating rules around, you know, clear treatment, clear tax treatment of, uh, of cryptocurrencies and how investors in this asset class are going to have to treat the gains that they, uh, that they achieve and the monetization of, of those, the realization of those gains. It's going to be, it's going to be a process uh, that is, part of the maturation of this asset class mainstreaming you can't mainstream bitcoin and these without some of the the institutional and regulatory requirements that mainstream assets all have to follow 
And we haven't even gotten into the SEC part of this, which is the investor protection piece. That right. is going to be, I mean, look at what Elon Musk, I mean, call it what it is. This is market manipulation, right? No question, I mean, about, it. No question about it. And he's doing it on purpose, surely. And the, you know, what exactly is behind it? Is it personal gain? Is it just, you know, to stir the pot? Who the heck knows? knows. Uh, but but it's something that the regulators will want to know. Uh, and it will be something that, you know, down the road, that kind of behavior, they will want, they, they will see as, as malign from the standpoint of retail investors in this space. And that's the kind of uh, aspect that they're going to want to at least get their arms around and understand from a regulatory standpoint. So that it's, you know, anti-money, la- the malign uses, anti-money laundering and, uh, and, uh, and, terrorism financing, taxation, and investor protection. And those are the three, we think, the the three goals that they are going to be going toward in their regulatory structure. And we don't think that the, you know, the, the excitement in crypto markets, it's always, uh, you know, speculative energies are, uh, are, are uh, on display in, uh, in the crypto market in meaningful ways. But, you know, if, this is, there, there are going to be some more growing pains to come. Yeah, I'm not. I, I want to. I want to ask. You know how we. You know how you. In, you know how you. I, 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 how do you price these assets? And because like there are always there are always been problems of pricing them in that in the in specifically in the case of Bitcoin. This is the irony to me. Is that to me like you know this like the joke of a Dogecoin is actually a better managed asset than yeah. Bitcoin because like you know it's gonna. There's a, there's a there's a there's a plan to grow the uh, the quantity of 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 those coins, you know, which is a joke, you know. But it's but at least there's like it, it has some basis in reality. Bitcoin, which is gonna we're gonna reach the end of the mining of it at great cost to the environment and energy usage. Um, but then you have a an asset that will only go, you know, we won't we will only see fewer. Bitcoins over time, not more, and you can fractionalize it and do other stuff with it uh, too. But but um, it's still it's a weird thing to try to you know use as a currency. It meets the you know the best gold bugs idea of what a you know magic coin would be. Um, yeah, it doesn't respond to typical like traditional macro stimuli. Uh, at least you know if you if you think it's a, a you know a hedge against over, you know, liquidity or Fed aggression in policy or, you know, fiscal largesse or the fiat money crash. It, if you look back, it doesn't seem to behave like that. (laughs) uh, In all kinds of wacky ways, you know, but even if it's, if if it, if it, if it uh, acts the way most of the proponents would like it to ask, which is to say that they see it increasing in value over time, then it just inspires hoarding. And, you know, the things that you hoard are not good medium of exchange. And so that makes it not a good uh, thing to use as a currency. And it seems to be, I was going to ask you this earlier, but I, I still don't see, you know, much use for a, a Bitcoin-like asset, except to pay off, you know, ransomware extortionists I don't, i'm not really sure you know for you know any anything illicit or if you need to like transfer large you know large uh, amounts you know large amounts of money in non-traceable ways 
that's the only use for it uh, that isn't that isn't already solved by you know using uh, traditional uh, 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 currencies. Well, this also brings us to a very interesting point. The Fed has just released yesterday their intention to publish a white paper on a central bank digital dollar. Yeah. And the the frictionless, when you talk with proponents of cryptocurrencies, it's that frictionless aspect. You're not going through the clunky and expensive process of, you know, of, of putting money, wiring money around. And, and it's that's uh, it's 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 supposed to be far more seamless. And this is what, you know, the digital renminbi, the digital dollar, what yeah. central bank digital currencies are supposed to be doing, like breaking down some of the frictions in the system. This is no, let's make no bones about it. This is disintermediating the banks and global payment system. So it's a delicate dance. The Chinese, there was a sense, you know, when you look at the case of China, they just came out this week and punched Bitcoin right in the nose with a, uh, with a PBOC statement that Bitcoin is, uh, by the way, uh, everybody in China, not for purchasing things or pricing goods that's not what we want. They've been, you know, some people see their interest in promoting the digital renminbi as partially some of the motivation for them to squash Ant Financial and make them, uh, you know, play by the rules of traditional yeah. finance so that the central government can do all of those whiz bang payment stuff uh, on their own, you know, very controlled networks. The U.S. government is obviously not uh, not going down the same road in the same line of thinking, but it's it's something that really has to be considered. This is going to be a fascinating uh, white paper, and uh, and where the the Fed comes down on it, trying to make this balance between getting the advantages of a, of a central bank digital currency without you know burning down parts of the financial global financial system or, or domestic financial system. It's it. That's this will be a fascinating, uh, fascinating process. I'm looking forward to it. I can't. Uh, I, I can't wait. To, it was definitely be an, uh, an anticipated paper, and I, I'm not, um, as you can tell by my comments, I'm not, not not a big believer in uh, uh, in, in crypto. But I, but I do like the uh, the idea of digital, you know, of of evolution in yes. money. By you know central bank authorities, and especially cross border, it's just very very hopefully. inefficient and very expensive, especially for for the poorest of people. You know remittance and things like that. We, we should be using this technology to to level the playing field and cheapen that. Um, and that's where they, I mean this you know this uh, you know the, the 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 Facebook and you know conglomerate um, you know digital currency they're talking about is to solve that very yeah issue you know a stable uh trustworthy currency for poor people around the world is uh, an interesting idea and basically the way they've done it is not this mysterious you know uh, you know bitcoin kind of uh environment it's uh it's you know pretty uh, it's open and transparent and um and uh and they've created something like you know a central bank authority yeah you know? to uh to oversee it which is kind of you know which is interesting and uh again not sure that it's you know if you've already got the fed and you've got a digital currency and you can you know you can basically dollarize the world if you wanted to yeah yeah I, I, another reason that china is interested in digital currency is because every transaction on digital currency is put on a blockchain so you can see what all your <laughs> all your citizens are 
spending their money on, which if you're a totalitarian state is a, uh, is a nice uh, little thing. I really love that feature of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, next week, what do we got next week? Um, Very quiet uh, week on the data front. The big one will be uh, uh, personal income and spending. And within that report, we get the PCE price index, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Um, we have a guest next week. We do. Uh, we're going to be, as we've talked about the uncertainty over the growth outlook for the U.S. and how the recovery is really developing. We always have to wait for the monthly data. Well, not everybody does. The, uh, the way that hedge funds and other, uh, other institutions operate is they get some very real to almost real time data from uh, uh, groups like, uh, like our friend. Uh, so her, her name is uh, she's an old friend of ours. Her name is Anumar Guy, and she is an executive at SpaceNo. They are a satellite-based company that monitors economic key, key economic activity in the U.S. and around the world, and uh, we're really excited to get her insights and talk to her about how she does what she does. At Definitely. Space yeah, that should, should be really fascinating and uh, a good show to look forward to. All right, guys, have a terrific weekend. Uh, we'll see you next week on the Macrocast. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.